It's the Adam Ragusea Podcast, episode 58. Listener Alex K. writes, Would you please rank the Metallica discography? Well, that's not the kind of thing we normally do here, Al. But maybe it could be? I guess we're going to find out? I think about Metallica a lot. Not because they're my favorite band. They're not. Uh, though they have made some of my favorite records. Metallica's successes and failures have informed my cooking, really every aspect of my creative life, and Metallica's unique relationship to fame has greatly influenced my own approach to internet micro-celebrity. If you're not into Metallica, I intend to make this hour or two instructive to you. If you've always wondered why so many dudes, like me, are obsessed with loving or hating this band, well, you're going to have a basic working knowledge by the end here, if you stick with me. I will rank all 11 Metallica original studio albums, including 72 Seasons, the new album that everybody's talking about. I will rank those from favorite to least favorite, but I am going to discuss them in chronological order, because I think that will make this episode especially approachable to the uninitiated. Almost any information can be made easy and enjoyable to learn if presented in the form of a story. And one definition of story is the presentation of information about events in chronological order. X happened and, therefore, Y happened next. Or X happened, but then Y happened next. That's very elementary storytelling, that device. And it's, uh, I got it from the South Park guys. I watched an interview years ago when uh, Matt Parker and Trey Stone were talking about plotting their cartoon, South Park, and how all of their story beats are connected with either a but or a therefore, meaning they try to make it clear that events in the story are either occurring as a consequence of previous events or just the opposite. Sometimes a new story beat comes out of the blue, right? Sometimes you're cooking dinner and you expect the next thing to happen will be the direct result of what you're doing right now. I cooked dinner and then, therefore, we sat down and ate. And that's like, that's like a therefore connection, right, between story beats. But there's the but connection. The but connection is you were standing there making dinner, expecting to have a nice meal, but then a bear stormed into the kitchen and ate you and your dinner instead. But or therefore. Stories have stronger forward momentum if all of the events are clearly connected with a but or a therefore. And I learned that very elemental bit of creative writing from the South Park guys, who I'm sure got it from someplace else themselves. This is hardly a new idea, but I'm going to rank the Metallica discography in chronological order so that I can make all of the but or therefore relationships between events nice and clear, which should make this a compelling narrative, as they say, even for people who don't care very much about Metallica. But then again, it doesn't take a lot uh, to uh, make the Metallica story interesting, right? There's a reason these 60-year-old guys remain the most popular heavy rock band in the world, and it's not just about their music. They are interesting guys with an interesting story, which begins in sunny Southern California just a couple of years before I was born in the early 1980s. James Hetfield, Metallica's singer and rhythm guitarist and chief creative officer. Papa Het was born in 1963, and grew up in an industrial suburb of Los Angeles called Downey, California. His dad was a truck driver. 
His mom was a singer, and they were Christian scientists. I think we're going to need to do a tangent on Christian science here, because nobody outside the U.S. knows what that even is, and lots of people in the U.S. don't even know what that is either, and fewer still every day know what that even is. It's not easy to grow a religion that eschews medical care, almost as tough as trying to grow a religion that promotes celibacy. You don't meet a lot of shakers these days because the shakers believed in lifelong abstinence, which barred them from making more shakers. So now there aren't any shakers. It's got to be tough to grow a religion when you tell people not to go to the doctor. Your flock is going to die off, and that's Christian science. Christian science is not Scientology. Scientology is this weird 20th century phenomenon where a failed science fiction writer called L. Ron Hubbard built a weird cult around himself where everyone believes his sci-fi books are real prophecy, and that cult ended up absorbing like half of the L.A. entertainment industry for some reason. That's Scientology. Christian science is a little older. It's a product of the Third Great Awakening which was a late 19th century spiritual movement in the U.S. The Great Awakening had several subcategories of religious thought within it, and one such subcategory was made up of people who were trying to reconcile ancient religious faith with Enlightenment values and knowledge. There were religious thinkers who admired the rigor of science and philosophy, or I could put it more cynically, and I could say that they admired the hold that science was starting to have over people because science is like magic that actually works, and results are persuasive to people. So, you had religious pioneers talking about God and Christianity in quasi or pseudo-scientific and philosophical terms. Mary Baker Eddy, founder of the Christian Science Church, taught that the laws of God and the laws of nature are one and the same, and therefore you can apply the laws of God systematically in the same way that you might apply the laws of physics to predict a result. Eddie said you can apply the love and power of God to your own health and healing, the same way that someone else might apply the power of medical science to their health and healing. Eddie was a faith healer who dressed up her rather primitive beliefs with pseudoscientific, pseudophilosophical mumbo-jumbo that appealed to people at the dawn of the scientific industrial age. That is my own admittedly uncharitable assessment of Mary Baker Eddy and the church that she founded, though I will say in her defense that medical science was still in a pretty dismal state back in her day, even you know where she lived in the 19th century, which was New England, a noted hotbed of medical innovation remains so to this day. Lots of brilliant medical pioneers are working in, in Boston or its orbit at the time, but nonetheless, 19th century physicians remained essentially quacks, and surgeons were just as likely to maim or kill you as they were to save you, and so people like Mary Baker Eddy were justifiably skeptical of medical science, and you could see the uh, Christian Science Church as a natural and logical reaction to a period in history when doctors had gotten out a little over their skis. Right? Like science had learned a ton about the human body, and doctors were really eager to apply this new knowledge to people's infirmities, but modern medicine just wasn't ready for prime time yet, and lots of people got badly burned by modern medicine. Their conditions terribly exacerbated or new ones created by doctors who had not yet mastered the alchemy of life the way they almost have these days. 
Mary Baker Eddy basically said, look, instead of the quacks, why not try prayer? And this fit neatly with the rise of metaphysical thinking in the Third Great Awakening. Christians have long believed that spiritual existence is more important than physical existence, as this life on earth is only a brief and temporary prelude to eternal life elsewhere. But these new metaphysical Christians took things one step further, and they asserted that the inner spiritual life, the life of the soul, actually creates the physical world. Like Some thought that the physical world is simply an illusion projected by the soul, and therefore physical reality can be altered by the mind. Wellness results from right thinking. Again, it's religious thought colliding with scientific thought. People came up with mind cures that sounded kind of scientific to an intellectually vulnerable person. The funny thing is that mind cures proved about as effective as medical cures because the medical cures of the day were bad and because the placebo effect actually works to some degree. Mind cures are real, just not in the way that Mary Baker Eddy explained them. So James Hetfield of Metallica, yeah, his parents were Christian scientists and didn't believe in medical care. And predictably, this resulted in little James's mother dying of cancer when he was a teenager Sounds like his home life would have been unhappy with or without all of that. So, little James was a moody, introverted, reclusive, arty kid who loved to draw and to read and to write and to play music. But he was also tall and tough and into sports and dude stuff. So he played football until his coach told him that he'd have to cut his hair. And to this day, I think... A secret to Metallica's enormous, enduring commercial success is that they appeal to both jocks and nerds, or jocks and goths, or emo kids, or whomever the jocks are beating up these days. Cliques who hate each other in high school can nonetheless bond over Metallica because James Hetfield is both a sensitive singer-songwriter with black nail polish, and he's an ass-kicking, beer-drinking, football-watching hetero alpha chad he's both of those things all of those things and the duality of het is the duality of metallica's fandom but papa het might not have gone anywhere in life if he hadn't met little lars ulrich the physically diminutive hyperactive somewhat spoiled only child of a successful danish tennis pro named torben ulrich Little Lars was going to play tennis professionally, too, himself, but his dad got him tickets to a Deep Purple concert in Copenhagen, and Lars was forever changed. He started playing the drums, moved to Southern California, put an ad in the Recycler music magazine, seeking other musicians to jam on Diamond Head and Iron Maiden tunes. That so-called new wave of British heavy metal was not super popular in the U.S., and so not that many people answered Ulrich's ad, but James Hetfield was one of them, and the core partnership of Metallica was thusly formed. James and Lars write all the songs together to this day. Other guys contribute ideas here and there, but it's still James and Lars getting together in a room and turning those ideas into actual songs. And they have an incredible partnership. Given that Lars 
can't play guitar or anything, James seems to generate most of the raw musical ideas and write all the lyrics, Lars keeps his eye on the bigger picture. He seems to structure the songs at the macro level, deciding which sections should lead into which other sections and how to tie the two together, etc. And Lars thinks about the overall aesthetic or attitude or creative direction that the band is going to go in. And he's clearly in charge of the uh, the business operation that is Metallica Incorporated. You know, James may be the chief creative officer, but Lars is the CEO. Certainly, a big part of Metallica's success is the fact that Lars took business more seriously than his heavy metal peers who tried to pretend that they were too cool to worry about business until their money ran out. And now those other metal guys who were too cool for business are on endless nostalgia tours playing county fairs for peanuts. Lars didn't try to be too cool or too good for business, and now Metallica can do anything they want creatively. So yeah, James, American and working class, and Lars, European and upper class enough to understand money. Different guys, but they had the same ideas about the kind of music they wanted to hear, the kind of thing they'd never heard before. They wanted the power and the musicianship of heavy metal, but with the snarling, petulant attitude and intensity of punk rock. Because a few years earlier, punk rock had just revolutionized popular music aesthetics by popping that ponderous, bloated balloon that was 70s rock. And the early punkers did this by not knowing how to play their instruments and not caring. Oh, you think rock and roll is all about showing everyone how schooled you are at your instrument? Well, watch how much we can move people by literally just banging our instruments like feral children. To demonstrate how rock and roll is about more than the notes... The original punkers played hardly any real notes at all, and their point was well made. But that also meant that in the early 1980s, there was virtually no punk musicians with actual technique yet. No one had heard music with that kind of don't-care attitude played by people who can actually play. And that was the early 80s thrash metal scene from which Metallica rose with their debut album, Kill 'Em All, originally titled Metal Up Your Ass, with the original cover depicting a hand with a bloody dagger thrusting upward from a toilet bowl. If this sounds like an album made by a bunch of 19-year-olds, that's because it was. I often find that it's important to remind myself how young entertainers and athletes tend to be when they first get famous. These are basically children we're talking about, and we would do well to remember as much. I think I'm going to rank Kill 'Em All at the bottom of my list, even though it's a terrific achievement and a historically significant album with a ton of bangers on it that people love to this day. Metallica still plays Seek and Destroy from their first album nearly every night, and it slays the crowd every time. But to me, the album just sounds a little too much like what it is, which is a bunch of teenagers who listen to Judas Priest making their first songs of their own. They had not yet invented the Metallica sound. Kill 'em All sounds like a collection of new wave of British heavy metal songs played by some overeager American kids who play everything super fast. It's teenage Judas Priest with the tempo way up and a singer who can't really sing. 
yet. Hetfield, in his earliest demos, had a high, boyish voice with which he could effectively imitate the high tenor power metal vocals of the day, a vocal style he knew and loved from bands like Iron Maiden. James seems to have suffered a partial voice change in between those demos and the recording of the Kill 'Em All album. He still sounds like a boy, but like a barky older boy, and he's lost some upper range with his partial voice change, so he tries to compensate by just screaming the notes that are now too high for him to sing. And as a result, the singing on Kill 'Em All is more punky and therefore maybe more cool to some people compared with the permanent tragic uncoolness of Maiden, but the singing is less interesting to me on Kill 'Em All. In contrast, James's abilities as a rhythm guitar player are almost fully developed on Kill 'Em All. So rhythm guitar refers to the riffs and the chords and other accompaniments that you play on guitar, as opposed to the guitar solos. James played his brother's drums before he ever played guitar, and you can tell his rhythmic percussive touch on the guitar is simply magical. James Hetfield is known for the crushing precision of his guitar playing. And these days, when everybody records records with a click track and every performance is edited and quantized into computerized perfection, we are used to hearing all the guitar parts in a song be almost perfectly in time. But that level of perfection was rare in 1981, especially in like punk-influenced music, which had been intentionally, defiantly sloppy until James Hetfield's right hand showed up and imposed order on the chaos. Because James is known for his downpicking, which a classically trained guitar teacher might have purged out of James if James had ever taken those kinds of lessons. Thank goodness he didn't. In the world of schooled musicians, we really value physical efficiency, economy of movement, martial arts type stuff applied to the flute or whatever, playing the notes with as little physical effort as possible. Because in classical music, we tend to play things with a lot of really fast notes, and physical efficiency means that you can play more notes faster with less stress on your body over time. Because repetitive stress injuries are a constant career threat to a symphony musician, for example. The most physically efficient way to play a fast, chuggy metal riff on the guitar is to alternate your picking. Your hand that is plucking the notes goes back and forth, picking the strings on the downstroke and then again on the upstroke. Very physically efficient. That's what a guitar teacher probably would have taught James to do. Thank God no one could tell little James anything because he found that he preferred the sound when he would just downpick a part like that. He does not strike the strings on the upstroke. He moves back up into position and then goes down for another downstroke, right? It's half as physically efficient, but if your right hand has been touched by God, then you can play incredibly fast stuff with only downstrokes, and and the sound is more consistent. Downstrokes have a little bit different sound than upstrokes. They have more force generally, you know, more power behind them. And if you can really slam every single chord in that chuggy riff with a downstroke, then you get a sound that is like a terrifying, well-oiled machine rumbling directly towards you. It's you know, terrifying. The bass stands in very stark contrast on Kill 'Em All. 
James and Lars were fortunate enough to eventually land Cliff Burton in their band. Cliff Burton was a savant at the heavy metal bass guitar. He was known in the Southern California scene as a great bass soloist. He would turn on a bunch of distortion and then play high lead lines with the bass guitar. To me, the best Cliff Burton performance ever captured is the 1985 live version of For Whom the Bell Tolls from Day on the Green Festival in uh, Oakland, California. Cliff is just on fire as he rips through an extended version of the bass solo that opens that song. And he was a cool guy, too. Cliff Burton just refused to accept that the 1970s had ended. He loved the whole acid rock vibe with the bell bottoms and the jean jackets and the little mustaches and the terribly unfashionable Rickenbacker basses, and he refused to let any of that go in the 80s. Cliff also had the most formal musical training of any of the Metallica guys. He'd actually studied music theory a bit in school, and he was just a legendary shredder on the bass before shredder on the bass was even really a job description. When it came time to playing the actual bass part of the song, though, you know, the bass line that accompanies most of the song underneath it, I believe, somewhat heretically that Cliff Burton was not that great, though I do like his sound on Kill 'Em All. Cliff came from the jazz and classical world, where the bass guitar is either bowed or plucked with the flesh of your fingers, the way that you would if you, you, know, you put your bow down on your music stand for a minute to play a pizzicato passage. You would not have any kind of plectrum in that context. You would just pluck the strings with your fingers. That's what you do when playing orchestral strings, and the Western string bass instrument is originally an orchestral string instrument that was and is usually bowed in that context. Jazz players pioneered a mostly plucked technique for the orchestral bass, which sounded good, but it was way too quiet, and the acoustic upright bass is very difficult to mic without creating feedback, so the volume of music was restrained by the bass. Then, Leo Fender and some other inventors working on parallel tracks in the mid-20th century, they tried crossing the orchestral bass with an electric guitar, an instrument that's amplified with magnetic pickups rather than microphones. And some people argue that this new bass guitar instrument is what allowed rock and roll to become rock and roll, because when all the other instruments could get louder— and the drummer could really smash the drums, and the guitar player could really turn up the amp so loud that it would distort and get all crunchy, and there you have heavy rock, all made possible by the new bass guitar instrument that was finally loud enough to compete. Some people pluck electric guitar strings with their fingertips, you know, sometimes, but more often they play with a little piece of plastic or a little piece of vinyl called a pick. You grip the pick in your fingers and you pluck the strings of the guitar with the plastic over the pick and you get a louder, quicker, and more consistent attack from a pick. Because the bass guitar is an electric guitar crossbred with an orchestral bass, some people apply more classical or jazz technique to the instrument and they pluck with their fingers while other people apply electric guitar technique and they play with a pick, you know, 
The finger players tend to look down on the pick players as not being real bass players, but I don't think it's controversial for me to say that both fingerstyle and pickstyle bass are awesome, and they both have their place in this world. Cliff Burton played with his fingers, and like a lot of naturally gifted players, he tended to play with a lot of looseness and spontaneity, and all of this contrasts so brilliantly on Kill 'Em All with James Hetfield's military precision on the rhythm guitar. The bass and the guitar don't seem to land exactly on the same beat. James lands on the beat first, and then Cliff's corresponding bass note seems to kind of swell up underneath like a little aftershock. It's something that jazz guys talk about in the context of a jazz rhythm section. You know, the jazz drummer plays on the beat while the bass player plays a little behind the beat, which means like a fraction of a second after the beat. And as a result, those bass notes seem to kind of swell up out of the drum hits and the bass and the drums compete with each other a lot less because they're not, they each have their own space to be heard because they're not both striking at the exact same millisecond. Very common sound in a jazz rhythm section, that is. And, and you hear a similar thing on Kill 'Em All, just in a very different context. I really like the bass sound on Kill 'Em All. I don't like it on subsequent Cliff Burton Metallica albums that we will get to. So Kill 'Em All is a terrific and important record that I enjoy listening to sometimes, but I rank it at the bottom because it's Metallica's juvenilia, which is a term used in art criticism to describe an artist's student pieces, you know, the stuff that they learned on before they really landed on their own style. Kill 'Em All could have been called Metallica juvenilia, though Metal Up Your Ass probably would have been a better title. The record was a hit by underground heavy metal standards. They made a little money and Lars flew everybody back to his home country of Denmark, where they would record Ride the Lightning, the second album. I don't think it's too controversial for me to say that the songs on Ride the Lightning have stood the test of time better than the recording and the performances on Ride the Lightning. Like half of the mainstay fan favorite must play songs on any Metallica set list to this day are from that second album recorded when they were still virtually children. Lars and James could not yet buy beer legally in the United States when they wrote For Whom the Bell Tolls and Creeping Death and Fade to Black and Call of Cthulhu, which, of course, was partially written by Dave Mustaine. Dave Mustaine of Megadeth was Metallica's original lead guitar player, and he contributed a lot to their early material, though the other guys kicked him out just prior to the recording of Kill 'Em All because Dave Mustaine was a violent drunk whose personality was clearly way too big to fit in a band fronted by James Hetfield. So he went and he started Megadeth, and that was obviously the right place for him. Anyway, regardless of how many Mustaine riffs were still rattling around in their repertoire, Metallica Metallica's songwriting is almost fully realized on Ride the Lightning. They don't sound like a teenage Judas Priest cover band anymore, except on this one song that the band has famously disavowed to some extent. I'm talking about the song Escape from Ride the Lightning, which actually sounds so much like a Judas Priest song that you wonder if they literally wrote it for Judas Priest to cut. Metallica never plays Escape live, though, as if to prove my point... Escape is in heavy rotation on 
Ozzy's Boneyard, hard and heavy classic rock on Sirius XM satellite radio, which I always listen to in the car. Escape feels right at home on the channel that also plays Judas Priest and Rainbow and Dio, but it doesn't feel at home on a Metallica record. Other than that song, their songwriting has pretty much matured by the second record. Performance and production-wise, I actually think Lightning might even be a step back compared to Kill 'Em All, though that is definitely a controversial opinion on my part. Fleming Rasmussen, the Danish guy that Lars found to produce the record for the right price, no doubt, Fleming just drenched that record in all of this echo, you know, reverb. So it has this flabby, sloppy quality that is exacerbated by the performances. James still sounds quite tight on his rhythm guitar, though perhaps not always at his tightest, I'm not sure. But Cliff Burton has switched from the clean, jazzy bass sound that he used on Kill 'Em All. He switched over to like a big, fuzzy, distorted rock tone on the ride, the ride, the, the, the ride, the lightning album, and that to me sounds awesome on his like lead soloistic passages. But it just sounds like mud when he's playing actual bass parts on his bass. Combine that flabby finger-picked tone with Cliff's characteristic looseness, and the the result is a rhythm section that just kind of sounds stumbling and fumbling on Ride the Lightning. And James and Lars responded to this problem by doing what they would do to extremes on future metallic albums, and that is they turned the volume way down on the bass when it's not playing the soloistic stuff. The bass is often barely audible on Ride the Lightning, and that's probably for the best, based on my assessment of the isolated Cliff Burton bass tracks that are available on YouTube. And of course, we've not even talked about Lars's drumming yet. He may be the greatest heavy metal band leader of all time. But no one would call Lars Ulrich the greatest drummer of all time, least of all Lars Ulrich himself. He knows that. You know, he knows that technique-wise, he is the least accomplished of all of the big four thrash metal drummers. He's at the bottom of his class, and he knows it. Indeed, when your professional peers are guys like Dave Lombardo from Slayer, there's really no point in even trying to beat them with technique. Lars has basically said that much in an interview. So I do think that Lars was a great drummer in his own way when he was at his peak. He just wasn't quite at his peak yet on Ride the Lightning, probably because he was, you know, 20 years old, for God's sake. We are talking about boys here. Let's cut them some slack. James's singing still sounds a little prepubescent on this record, but that'll happen with a 20-year-old. I'm actually going to put Ride the Lightning all the way up at number four on my personal list of Metallica albums, purely on the strength of the songs. Several songs on this album are good enough to be any other band's greatest hit. The songs are starting to sound more serious at this point, big and epic instead of like little and sweaty and grimy, which is the way the songs on Kill 'Em All sound to me. And you get the first flashes of the real technical sophistication that the band would explore over the next couple albums. The first two songs, Fight Fire with Fire and Ride the Lightning, both feature extended passages where I am not sure where the one is. Like, I can hear the cons the consistent tempo, but I can't figure out which 
we're like where we are in the bar. Like, are we on the first beat or the second beat or the and of one, which would be the, the halfway between beats one and two. I really can't place myself during certain moments of both of those songs. And if you follow a YouTube channel called Art of Guitar, Mike there is both a great guitar player and a great drummer. And he has a great breakdown of Fight Fire with Fire where he explains where the one is. I still can't hear it, Mike. But I understand on the theoretical level now, thanks to the art of guitar on YouTube. So Metallica's underground fame and cred was building with their second album and cool people knew who they were. Kurt Cobain famously loved Ride the Lightning. And I think you can hear a fair bit of early Metallica influence in Nirvana, but Metallica had tasted no mainstream success yet. So they went back to the same cold, cheap studio in Denmark to record with Fleming again, and this time, everybody brought their A-game. The stars were aligned, the band's abilities finally caught up to their ambitions, and that's when artists usually make their most exciting work, in my opinion, when they've just gotten mature enough and good enough to realize their vision for the first time. And that is the Master of Puppets album, to me. It's Metallica's Masterwork, which reminds me that it's time to thank Masterworks, sponsor of this episode. If you're hoping to acquire a Metallica-sized bank account, you're probably going to need to invest your earnings, and I think you should do whatever your financial advisor tells you to do. That's what I do. But you might want to bring up Masterworks as an alternative investment that is not especially tied to stocks and bonds and the normal stuff that you may have already, as I do. Conventional investments like these have been having a rough time lately. Last year was the worst since the 2008 financial crisis for many investments, and an undiversified portfolio might not even keep up with inflation these days. Did you see that there's like a big kerfuffle in Italy because pasta prices jumped 20%? So how can Masterworks help? By allowing normal, small-time investors like you and me to do what the big guys do and invest in fine art to diversify their holdings family offices representing some of the wealthiest American families were surveyed by Goldman Sachs, and the results showed they are looking to invest in private assets, collectibles with the greatest allocations to art. 2022 was the best art auction year ever, with the highest total from the big three auction houses, nearly $18 billion in sales. Problem with real fine art is that you generally need millions of dollars to buy a single painting. Masterworks simply allows you to buy a share in an artwork instead. They've got 700,000 users with more than $700 million worth of art under their management. They've sold $45 million worth of art thus far, and every Masterworks sale has returned net positives to investors, some quite large. As with any investment, there's no guarantee of future success, but look into Masterworks to diversify your portfolio with some fine art. Go to masterworks.art slash to get special access to Masterworks right now. Offerings usually sell out in hours and they've had to make a wait list. So use my link instead for special access. Masterworks.art slash Thank you, Masterworks. Now, Master of puppets. Most rankings have Master of Puppets on top, or they might rank 
Puppets as Metallica's number one critical success, while maybe the Black Album is their number one commercial success. Absolutely no one who knows a lot about Metallica would fault you for putting Puppets first. Will I rank it first? In some ways, the songwriting isn't quite as strong on Puppets as it was on Ride the Lightning. The songs on Puppets are longer and more complex and less accessible. The biggest hits on Lightning are pop songs played rough, just as Nirvana's biggest hits are pop songs played rough. There are some pop-worthy hooks on Master of Puppets, but no actual pop songs. Too long, too complex, too dark, too aggressive. The first song, Battery, is another example where I cannot find the one at least not during the main riff in the verses. Again, Mike at Art of Guitar on YouTube has a great explanation that I understand intellectually, but not intuitively. I can't feel where the one is in battery. I'm not sure if Lars and James even knew what an odd time signature was back then, but they wrote in odd time signatures all the time. That is when the repeating rhythmic cycle of the song consists of seven beats or five or 11 instead of the usual Four. Most rock and pop songs you can count entirely in cycles of four, but less so with Metallica. The title track, Master of Puppets, is just a stone-cold classic. It's, it's so great to see a new generation of young people discover that song via its very prominent use in Stranger Things, you know, the television program. James's voice is still a little high, but there's a maturity and a confidence in his voice that he didn't have before. There's nothing awkwardly adolescent in his voice anymore by the time we get to puppets. He doesn't sound like an angry god yet, but he does sound like an angry demigod. Kirk Hammett has fully arrived at this point, I think. We've not talked about Metallica's lead guitar player yet. Anybody who really thinks Kirk is a bad guitar soloist needs to listen to puppets again. He is on fire here. His solos are melodic and expressive when they need to be, and they are ripping and dazzling when they need to be, and the solos have a lot of like internal structure that reveals how worked out, how composed the solos are. The solos build intention at the macro level. One section builds to the next, which builds to the next, and the sound, like the tone of Kirk's lead guitar is just... Chef kiss on puppets. I miss the days when lead guitars sounded like laser beams. There was just something so heroically futuristic about the lead guitar tones of the 70s, well, late 70s and, and the 80s. All of my favorite stuff is from then, basically. Lars seems to be getting better on the drums on puppets, and the recording is tighter, you know, less reverb blurring out the precision of James's incredible right hand, though it should be said that some of the tightness on puppets is the result of cheating. Fleming Rasmussen, the producer, has said that he had the band record the title track a half step lower so that he could speed the tape up a little bit, and the result sounds unnaturally precise because it is. Not even Metallica can play Master of Puppets cleanly at album tempo, and they prove as much night after night. It should also be said that the incredible tightness on Master of Puppets is the result of 
pulling Cliff Burton's bass way down in the mix to the point where it's barely audible, except during his soloistic passages that remain best in class. But when he's just playing the bass part, Cliff Burton's fuzzy, finger-picked sound is just not up to snuff for this kind of music. I listen to the isolated tracks online when Cliff is just playing bass parts on Master of Puppets. It sounds like somebody is rummaging through a drawer of rubber bands. It's all flapping and snapping in mud. Though Cliff ha- also had his, uh, his finest hour on Puppets, of course, with the instrumental track Orion, to me, obviously the best of all Metallica instrumentals. And I'm, of course, focusing on the uh, soft section that begins four minutes into Orion with a haunting solo bass riff. I'm not playing any clips in this show because I don't want any copyright problems, but even if you have no interest in Metallica, go listen to Orion starting at the four minute mark. Cliff opens with this just gorgeous, cleanly played solo bass riff, and the guitars come in playing these spacey, eerie, melodic lines in harmony, and here the bass sounds great in the mix because there's no distortion on it, and because the guitars and the bass are occupying separate spaces. This is something that I think about in my cooking all the time, not having elements that step on each other's toes. In heavy rock music, as first defined by Black Sabbath, the rhythm guitar usually does what the bass does in other music, right? Like the rhythm guitar holds down the bottom and locks in with the drummer and outlines the crucial harmonic information in the song. The rhythm guitarist stole the bass player's job when heavy metal music was first invented. Bands continued to play with a bass player for a few reasons. Bands had always had a bass player, so the position was perpetuated by means of institutional inertia. And metal music with no bass at all in the mix does tend to sound a little thin, as we shall see in the fourth Metallica album. So even if the bass player is just doubling what the rhythm guitar player is doing, at least the bass player is doing it an octave lower, which has the effect of beefing out the sound of the guitar. And that may be a good enough reason to keep the bass player around in metal, but especially as guitarists started to tune their instruments way down in the late 1990s, and then as like seven and eight and nine string guitars became all the rage this century, guitar players were playing lower and lower. And I've always loved how the band Animals as Leaders, arguably the template setting band for all of the modern progressive gent metal bands out there today, Animals as Leaders was just like, why do we need a bass player? We have two guys playing extended range guitars. We can cover the bass lines ourselves. Thank you very much. It's rather like uh, Ray Manzarek the organ player in the doors. He was like, I, I have a left hand, so why do we need a bass player? You don't need a bass instrument to play the bass part. I'll never forget my composition professor in college, Paul Barsom. Uh, he and I were talking about this piece that I was working on that was for piano and some other instrument. And I was like, I'm hearing like a low part here. Should I add some kind of bass instrument to this ensemble? And Paul was like, you know, if you want bass, you have it. And he just slammed the low A on the piano in his office, and his point was well made. If you listen to a piano player and a bass player fighting over the same space, <laughs> example of that would be uh, the first Ben Folds 5 record, which is a great record. 
But Ben got better in his later years about, like, playing up higher on the piano to leave the bass player some room to work unmolested. Perhaps he got better about that because he was his own bass player on later records, and Ben Folds rips on the bass as well as he rips on the piano, and that's really saying something. In metal music, heavy metal, the bass players and the rhythm guitar players are constantly duplicating each other's effort and stomping on each other, which muddies the low end, and it detracts from the power of the total ensemble because there's wasted effort. You got two guys playing basically the same notes, same part. If I'm developing a recipe, I want to keep the ingredients minimal for all kinds of reasons, and you can get more out of a short list of ingredients if you select things that will each sing in their own register and not duplicate each other. I don't know why so many recipes call for both leeks and onions. Like a leek is a kind of onion. It gets you oniony flavor and a globe onion is just going to overpower the relatively subtle leeks. The soft section of Metallica's Orion tastes bigger, sounds bigger than the whole rest of the album, even though it's the soft, slow section. It sounds so big, starting at the four-minute mark, because the bass and the guitars are not duplicating each other. The bass is handling the bottom end accompaniment entirely by itself. There is no rhythm guitar doubling an octave higher. At least not until later. The guitars are all just up higher in the register playing these melodic lines in harmony with each other. You're getting more parts out of the same instrumental forces, and it sounds big. Other reason this section of Metallica's Orion sounds big is its use of... Development. In classical composition, development is what it's really all about. Development in music composition is when you take a previously heard idea and you change it a little bit to make it grow or to make it point in a new direction. Just listen to any fugue by Bach. He'll play a little melody. This is called the subject. Then he'll develop it by transposing it, moving it up or down while he plays a counter melody against the subject called counter subject. And then he'll start turning the subject upside down or stretching it out or making new melodies out of identifiable tiny chunks from the original subject. J.S. Bach almost never repeats something without developing it. In contrast, modern popular music is filled with undeveloped repetition, where the band just plays the same riff exactly the same way four times before they move on to the next section. And there was no particular reason to play it four times, except that events in rock music usually add up to four. And that feels natural to us, perhaps because we are bipedal animals. We walk in an even meter as opposed to all those three-legged creatures who walk in an odd meter. Anyway, learning how to develop musical material is probably the most useful skill that you get in classical composition training. Classical music is not the end-all, be-all, but it is really good at this thing, development. And I'm not sure if Metallica even fully remembers how they wrote Orion 
and who wrote what, but James has said many times that Cliff's classical training really came to bear on Orion. That soft section of Orion has lots of development. Riffs and sections don't just repeat on endless, unchanging loops. They grow and they change and evolve and build in a way that keeps tension growing and growing. It's probably Metallica's best section of music, and I wish they could remember how they did it, because repetition without development has been a consistent blight on their songwriting ever since Cliff Burton died which he did just a few weeks into the supporting tour for the Master of Puppets album. They were riding in a cramped tour bus through Sweden. No one was very comfortable, so Cliff and Kirk drew cards to determine sleeping arrangements. Cliff drew the higher card, so he got to claim the good bunk, previously occupied by Kirk. The bus crashed in the night, causing Cliff to be crushed underneath it. The other guys in the other bunks were uninjured. That'll mess up an already messed up young person's psyche, surviving your best friend that way. Traumatized, but too young and hyper-masculine to really talk about their trauma. James and Lars and Kirk held auditions for a replacement much too swiftly, and they choose a new bass player, named Jason Newstead, who was then the bass player and, people forget, the primary songwriter in the thrash band Flotsam and Jetsam. Jason was a really different guy for the band. Cliff Burton was a little too cool to be in Metallica. Like James and Lars had to convince Cliff to join. Jason, in contrast, was like if the groupie was allowed to join the band. No one was a bigger Metallica fan than Jason Newstead, and he had a lot of boyishly naive energy, even though he was like the same age as the other guys. He was maybe a little bit more sheltered, having grown up on a farm in Michigan. James once described Jason as having the punter vibe, and I would love to know what he meant by that. Is he using punter in the British sense, which is roughly equivalent to the American slang word sucker, you know, an easy mark, a naive dummy who is easily victimized by a more savvy player? James Hetfield is a man who has traveled the world, so it's not crazy to think that he would have picked up some British slang, but he's also a football fan. American football, gridiron football, which has a player position known as the punter, who is one of the few players in this ostensibly foot-oriented ball game who actually kicks the ball with his foot. The punter on an American football team is a specialist who comes on the field for like two seconds every now and then to kick the ball to the other team. That's his only job. And so the punter tends to be physically smaller and weaker than the other guys on the team. And he, he doesn't play that many minutes in a game. And the other guys tend to look down on the punter a little. And so maybe that's what James Hetfield meant when he said that Jason Newstead has the punter vibe. I don't know. Wish I knew. There is something small and boyish about Jason Newstead, even though he's taller than Lars and as old as James. They attributed this wide-eyed affect to the fact that Jason was a fan of Metallica who got to be in Metallica, and that 
the other guys resented him for this. They resented that Jason hadn't earned his place in this successful underground band. He hadn't helped build it with them. He just walked into it. And he was living his dream by being in Metallica, while the other guys were living in a kind of nightmare, having suffered the trauma of Cliff's death, which they blamed on Jason on some level. Cliff was gone. And this punter was now in his place, and so maybe it felt to the other guys like Jason had stolen Cliff from them, the way a child blames their step-parent for the loss of their birth parent. And Jason was a really different bass player compared to Cliff. Jason played with a pick instead of his fingers. He says he did this to get maximum volume and to be heard over the drums on the crappy little amp that he started with. Jason played with a pick, and he was not a soloist. James and Lars probably didn't want another soloist. They coveted the limelight as they grew in their abilities and confidence. And Jason didn't have much of a classical background or anything. So as a result, he didn't really know how to write bass lines that serve as a counterpoint to what the guitar is doing. He really only knew how to double the rhythm guitar and active down, which is the main job of a bass player in Metallica. And so it was mostly fine. In fact, on their normal chugging textures, I think Jason's pick playing was actually a better fit for Metallica than Cliff's fingerstyle playing. The pick is more precise, especially when you're playing loud and fast. And so Jason could really lock in with James's right hand and they achieved just crushing power between them. Plus, the attack of the pick on the bass strings makes a kind of clicking sound when you play with a lot of force, and that click sits really well in a heavy metal mix. It gives a lot of sharp attack to beats that the whole band is landing on. Like, the first thing you hear is that click. To hear that effect realized to its full potential, listen to Megadeth, not Metallica. Megadeth's Rust in Peace, Junior's clicky picked bass attack gives just so much texture to Mustaine's rhythm guitar playing. Jason Newstead in Metallica didn't get his chance to shine in the mix because when they recorded album number four, James and Lars pulled Jason's bass tracks almost down to silence on the mixing board. That doesn't stop And Justice For All from being my favorite Metallica album. It's my number one. I don't think it's the best Metallica album. I think the best Metallica album is either Puppets or the Black Album, depending on how you define quality. They hit the nail on the head with Puppets, and with Justice, they just kept hitting the same nail over and over and over again for 12 minutes of a song through all of these head-spinning tempo changes and meter changes and key changes. Oh, I'm just kidding about the last part. Metallica songs are always in E minor. Anyway, when Metallica made Justice, they made puppets, but more. More musically progressive, harder, faster, darker, bleaker. They were obviously not in a good headspace when they made this record about how there is no justice in the world. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, someone more powerful than you will decide your fate. The shortest straw has been pulled for you, James sang in a line that must have been directly inspired by the game of chance that resulted in Cliff Burton getting crushed on that bus instead of Kirk. And Kirk's solos are even better on this album. Instead of sounding like a laser beam, his tone sounds like a 
dentist's drill. And the fact that Jason's bass is almost completely missing makes the album sound even more extreme in a way. Like the texture is so sparse. The drums are really light and tinny, like the kick drums especially have a clicking sound to their attack. That legend has it. Lars created by like taping coins to the drums. People made fun of that clicky kick drum sound when they first heard it, but nearly every heavy metal record made since then has had a lot of that high frequency click on the kick drum sound because it gives an incredible attack to metal music. And James's rhythm guitars sound kind of small too, in part because there's no bass to reinforce them, but also because James is just playing too precisely at this point. By the late 80s, James Hetfield had left humanity. He was bionic. That right hand, man, he, he would just layer up his rhythm guitar parts with so much precision they they just sounded like one guitar instead of a whole orchestra of guitars which is the sound that people are usually going for they recorded this record in la not copenhagen this time and the studio sound either due to the nature of the room or to the effects they used is much drier very little reverb the record sounds small but in a big way like it sounds tightly packed like dangerously tightly packed like it's about to spring open explosively at any second or like the music has been mercilessly extruded through a tiny aperture under like ultra high pressure and it comes spewing out at ultrasonic speeds that could be used to like etch steel I love justice for how bleak it sounds, how unrelentingly gun metal gray it sounds. And some Adam Ragusea fans may have noticed that before I blew up on YouTube making food, I posted a number of other videos on non-food topics, including my own attempt to mix Jason's bass back into a song from Justice, Blackened, another song where I can't figure out where the one is during the main riff, which was written by Jason, by the way. Metallica has a pretty good track record of finding special people for that bass player slot in the band. If you need to find special people to do a job, consider hiring with Indeed, sponsor of this episode. If you're hiring for your business on your own, you're basically trying to find a Jason Newstead in a haystack. That's like a whole second job. You need Indeed's matching platform to find who you're looking for. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in the same place. More than 3 million businesses worldwide use Indeed to hire great talent fast. It's four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. With Indeed Instant Match, more than 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to U.S. Indeed data. Once you've got some matches, you can reach out to those people through Indeed, which makes it way more likely that they're going to actually apply for your job. You can do a virtual interview through Indeed. You can administer skills tests, assessments. Even better, Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash Ragusea. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 job credit now at indeed.com slash Ragusea. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Anyway, 
adding the missing bass back into the Justice album. I'm not the first person to attempt a Justice for Jason remix. The isolated tracks are available on the internet thanks to the Rock Band video game franchise. Those games only work if the individual instruments can come in and out of the song based on how well you play the game. And the only way you can do that is if you go back to the original multi-track tapes the album was recorded on, which the bands or the labels are willing to do because getting your music in a video game is one of the few ways to make any actual money with recorded music anymore. I suspect one of the reasons James and Lars pulled down the bass on Justice was that they didn't know how to mix bass into a metal record. They'd never really done it before. As we said, Cliff's bass was usually pretty low in the mix, too, except during his uh, his solos, and Cliff tended to follow the rhythm guitar a little less literally in how he arranged his parts, and playing with his fingers made the notes fall a little to the side of the guitar notes, and so the bass competed with the guitar a little bit less, at least. And even Cliff got mostly cut out of the mix. With Justice, Jason simply went into the studio and perfectly doubled James's parts, one octave down, with a pick. Lars and James had no idea how to mix a bass and a guitar together so they could coexist in that same space. When I remixed Blackened, I tried to do what they did on Megadeth's Rust in Peace album, which was around the same time, right? What you do is you boost the bass up, but you cut out certain mid-range frequencies in the bass that really interfere with the guitar. You scoop the mids, basically, and you get a bass that has low end to beef out the guitar and high end to cut through the guitar and no mids to compete with the guitar. Sounds damn good in Rust in Peace and could have sounded good on Justice, but even Jason Newsted has said that he is glad that the record came out the way that it did. It was meant to be flaws included. And it was the album that broke Metallica into the mainstream. Not with some radio-friendly barn burner, but with the laconic ballad One, an eight-minute epic filled with extensive, purely instrumental sections building to the famous machine gun riff, where James simply chugs and Lars doubles those fast notes with his clicky double kick drum playing. Double kick drum playing. The standard Western drum kit that came out of New Orleans jazz normally has just one bass drum, also known as a kick drum because you play it with your foot. In the 80s, heavy rock players started playing kits with two kick drums side by side so that they could play faster patterns. Now we have double kick drum pedals that allow you to play with two feet on one drum, but back then you had to have two kick drums side by side, and that looks way cooler anyway, so... Nobody on earth would call Lars Ulrich the greatest double kick player. He's infamously sloppy with it, especially live nowadays. Nor was Lars the first double kick player, though he did come to it kind of early, perhaps because his quick little tennis feet gave him abilities that other guys lacked early on. Lars wasn't the best or the first, but I think others would join me in calling Lars probably the most important double kick player of all time. Guys like Joey Jordison or Thomas Hake, Hack, I don't know how you say his name, but the, you know, the Meshuggah guy, the godfather of Gent, those guys massively exceeded Lars Ulrich's double kick playing, but they were inspired to do it in the first place 
because they heard the machine gun riff from one. And to this day, no one has written a more iconic double kick part. Simple as it may be. Simple is usually better. Simple works. As a drummer, Lars is very comparable to Ringo Starr. Only people who don't know what they're talking about think that either man is a bad drummer. Both men drum badly sometimes, but they are not bad drummers. They have enough technique to bring it when they really have to, but more importantly, they're just great drum part composers. Lars and Ringo write memorable, hooky parts for the drums. They also play with a lot of looseness that gives their drumming character. You know who's playing immediately because of how the notes fall slightly to the side of the beat. And Lars and Ringo have both been genre-defining drummers. Like, they inspired more people to play than almost anyone else. And in that, they signed their own death warrants. Because Lars and Ringo inspired far more technically capable people to try to exceed their achievements, which is exactly what happened. But most of those better drummers picked up the sticks in the first place because Ringo or Lars inspired them to. And the songs, the songs, the songs that Ringo and Lars played on have not been exceeded by anyone. And the drums are part of the songs, both in terms of the composition and the record itself. If there are so many metal drummers out there who are so much better than Lars, then why haven't any of them cut any better songs yet? Maybe being a great drummer isn't what you think it is. Plus, Lars plays pretty darn great when he's in shape and giving it his full attention, which he definitely was on Metallica's fifth album, simply titled Metallica, but known as The Black Album due to its cover art being None More Black. If the one single was a golf tee, then the Black Album was the ball that Metallica placed on that tee and hit to land a hole in one. It's Metallica's biggest selling album to date by far. It's the record where they finally got a big deal music industry producer to help them out. Bob Rock is his name, Bob Rock. It's the first album for which they made a bunch of like MTV friendly videos back when that really mattered. It's also the first album for which James and Lars consciously tried to simplify the songs, which made the songs more direct and powerful and radio friendly. Bob Rock actually knew how to mix bass with guitars. And so you can hear Jason a little bit on the Black Album. The record sounds absolutely huge, especially by comparison to the extruded toothpaste of the Justice album. This is the best and the worst thing about the Black Album, in my opinion. The glossy production from the Motley Crue guy, Bob Rock, has not aged quite as well as the songs have, though it could have been so much worse. Like other big budget rock records from that era sound way more dated. And in a funny way, simplifying the songs made them more sophisticated because it forced James and Lars to actually develop ideas instead of simply repeating them and moving on to the next one. Metallica songs from the beginning until today are usually assemblages of different riffs 
James writes the riffs with Kirk kicking in a few. And then James and Lars arrange those riffs in a sequence that forms the bones of a song. They figure, you know, riff A and riff B are in a similar tempo and they have a similar key and a similar vibe. So they might sound good in the same song together. So let's do riff A four times for the intro, and then we'll do riff B four times for the verse. That's how James and Lars sketch out the bones of songs. And who am I to say that they're wrong? I mean, look at the scoreboard. Metallica has sold a few more records than Adam Ragusea. But when they sat down to write the Black Album, James and Lars said, what, what if we build a song around one riff and one riff only to make it simpler and more to the point and more memorable. That works. And you can just repeat the same riff over and over again for an entire song, but that's not super interesting. Eventually, you want to make new sections. And the only way you can do that without writing a new riff is to develop the riff that you already have and thus James and Lars did more compositional development on the Black Album than they had done since Cliff Burton died. Their biggest hit ever, the first song on the Black Album, is the perfect example. Enter Sandman. It started as this big riff written by Kirk. You probably know it. It's iconic. It's the boom, boom, right? And to make a lighter introduction, James played that Sandman riff a little differently. And to build tension for the pre-chorus, he played the riff intro style, but transposed up a whole step to create a little modulation. It's debatable whether the phenomenon that Metallica calls a modulation is really a key change, which is what modulation usually means in music, or it could just mean, you know, a chord change is maybe what they mean when they say modulation and Metallica, just chord change. The waters are muddied there because metal music is usually built around riffs, not chords. And the riffs might imply chord changes or they might not. And so it's muddy. Anyway, they built a whole song by developing one very catchy riff. And the result is the biggest song of their careers. Enter Sandman. I wish James and Lars would remember that lesson more often. I listened to the Black Album nonstop when I was a kid, as most kids in my world did at the time, whether they wanted to or not. The Black Album was simply everywhere, all the time, in the early 1990s. And as a result, I left the album behind as I got older. I found it a little embarrassing to listen to, perhaps because of like how mainstream it was, or perhaps because of how it reminded me of the awkward adolescent that I was when I listened to that album nonstop. It's also worth mentioning that like half the songs on the Black Album are undisputed stone-cold classics that would have to go on any best-of compilation. Well, the other half of the songs on the Black Album are some of the most forgettable work of their entire careers. I don't know how or why that happened, but the yawning gap between the killer and the filler on the Black Album is wider than most such gaps. Like, whatever happened to The Struggle Within or Of Wolf and Man, those songs are forgotten. Well, meanwhile, all you have to do is go, taka taka 
and half the people in any room will start air drumming sad but true. If all of the other metal drummers are so darn great, how come none of them has come up with a drum hook more memorable than the one from Sad But True? Maybe Lars Ulrich just understands the job description a little better than those other guys. I can't deny the power of Sad But True or The Unforgiven or Nothing Else Matters. If you haven't seen it yet, you gotta pull up this clip from the Howard Stern show from like a year or two ago when Metallica was on at the same time as Elton John because they had collaborated on something forgettable. But in this Howard Stern clip from last year or whatever it was, it was recently, Elton John got into talking about Nothing Else Matters, Metallica's big ballad from the Black Album, and Elton John called it one of the greatest songs ever written. That's Elton John saying that. And whether you love Elton John or hate him, he's one of the most successful songwriters of all time. And in this Howard Stern clip, you can see the weight of what has just happened slowly fall on James Hetfield's brow like james realizes in real time on camera that one of the undisputed greatest songwriters of all time just called his song james's little ballad one of the greatest songs of all time like you watch the weight of this wash over james's face as it happens and he starts to to weep papa het the big strong metal man cries when he learns how highly Elton John regards a Metallica song. It's really something to watch. You got to go watch that clip. I can't deny the power of the Black Album, even though it embarrasses me a little, which is why I'm going to rank it at number three. Black Album comes in at three. Puppets is two. Justice is one. Kill em All is way down at the bottom for me at 11, even though I still like that album. It's just not the Black Album. Everything changed with the Black Album. Metallica became extremely rich and famous, and they toured the world constantly for years to consolidate their gains. People came to feel that they, they knew Metallica in a way that they'd never known any other rock band before, because when they recorded the Black Album, they invited the guy who directed the Beastie Boys' Fight for Your Right to Party video Adam Dubin to uh, come into the studio and to produce a documentary about the making of the Black Album. It was called A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica. It really did take that long to make the Black Album. It was a relentless process where everyone involved strove for absolute perfection. And Lord, there was drama. Lars was a visionary, but also an enfant terrible, and he would have hissy fits and stab his drums with the sticks in the middle of a take and do all kinds of things like that. But because Lars is a freaking visionary, he knew that inviting cameras into the inner sanctum would make Metallica more popular, even if it made them look bad. Everybody knows that now, but back in 1991, before the social internet, it took vision to see that lifestyle vlogging, which is essentially what that documentary was, lifestyle confessional vlogging might diminish you in some ways, but it will get more people interested in you and eyeballs equal money. 
Metallica has published an embarrassingly intimate behind-the-scenes, fly-on-the-wall-type documentary for most of their albums since. That's how we know so much about their songwriting process. They roll camera as they write. And in my estimation... Metallica's public image has never fully recovered from this unprecedented transparency, or exhibitionism, you might call it. Metallica were a bunch of scary dudes in the 80s, intimidating scary dudes, and now nobody's scared of Metallica as people. Showing their audience their full selves brought Metallica so much closer to their audience, but it also robbed them of their mystery, their mystique. I have thought about that many times as I have tried to manage my own internet micro celebrity. I understand that my persona is my stock in trade and I have to give you lots of myself in order to maintain your interest. But I have also held lots of stuff back because I don't want to dangle my bits as shamelessly as Metallica pioneered. I want my privacy and I want my mystique. If I have any left, it's good to leave people wanting to know a lot more about you. And that's something that I learned from Metallica well, and from Prince in a different way. There's almost nothing we don't know about Metallica. And I think Metallica stands somewhat diminished as a result. Not commercially, though. Commercially, Metallica has been on top ever since that Monster Black album tour that went on for four years, I think. And when it was finally time to start writing a new record, James and Lars were different people ready to do different things. They had taken extreme progressive thrash past its endpoint with justice. They'd taken pop metal past its endpoint with the Black Album. So what was going to be next? Well, the load Reload era is, in many ways, comparable to the Beatles' White Album era. You know, lots of bands have a record like this that follows a record on which they'd exhausted themselves. Like the Beatles went for perfection on Sgt. Pepper, or at least Paul did. That's really Paul's album, but it's their most ambitious single statement, other than arguably the Abbey Road album, but Abbey Road was later. The Beatles exhausted themselves delivering the highly refined, highly distilled record that was Sgt. Pepper. And so when it was time for the Beatles to make the White Album, they didn't distill a single thing. There was no quality control, deliberately so. They just wanted to vomit music. All the pent-up ideas from India that they couldn't cram into the highly reduced sauce that was the Pepper album. They recorded nearly every song they had, dozens of songs in the White Album, and they recorded them quickly without overly inspecting everything to make it perfect. And the result is amazing. I love the White Album, though I also agree with the Beatles producer, George Martin, who said that it could have been an even stronger album if they had whittled it down to just the very best stuff and made it a single LP instead of the, the double album that we all know as the White Album. I, I'm, I'm quite glad that the double White Album exists because I love most of those songs, but if I imagine a single record that's only the very best stuff from the White Album, I can't deny what an accomplishment such an album would have been. So here's Metallica in the mid-90s, 
biggest band in the world, money coming out of their ears, nothing left to prove. And so they wanted to make their white album. They'd exhaust themselves forging the near perfection of the black album. And they wanted to relax and just play and do some songs that don't have to be perfect. The result was the album Load and the follow-up Reload, which really should be taken as one big double album like the White Album, even though it wasn't published that way. It's really all the same batch of work. And the legacy of the Load Reload era is probably, on balance, negative especially among the core Metallica fan community. And there are many reasons for that, good and bad reasons. Here are some of the bad reasons why fans don't like Load Reload. The Metallica boys cut their long hair and started wearing designer clothes and black eyeliner in which they looked undeniably great in the prime of their physical lives in their early 30s, I guess that would have been, but... Metallica fans distinguished themselves from like hair metal fans by just wearing their scuzzy blue jeans and their t-shirts. Metallica was supposed to be a blue collar band and all of a sudden they didn't look like a blue collar band anymore. And that freaked people out. Another bad reason people dislike nineties Metallica is that they changed their musical style. Now I classify that as a bad reason because Metallica really didn't change their style. They can't write like anybody else, even if they want to, they don't know how to write songs other than Metallica songs. Yes, there are a lot of mid-tempo songs on Load Reload, but there were a lot of mid-tempo songs on the Black Album. The best songs on that album are all mid-tempo songs. Yes, Metallica leaned into their, their blues sound a little heavily in this era, the Load Reload era, but they've always had blues in their DNA, as all rock and roll does. Rock and roll came out of the blues. Yeah, there were a few weird moments on a few load reload songs where they brought in like a hurdy-gurdy player or whatever to make something sound all sea chanty, but that's really very superficial. That's just the cover on the book. The song is still a Metallica song. They can't write anything else. Here are some good reasons to dislike these albums, in my view. Load and reload are legitimately half-baked Metallica is awesome, but that band is not as talented as the Beatles. The Beatles had three of the greatest songwriters of all time. Metallica has one. I think only James could be classified as a great songwriter on his own. I'm not sure if the White Album should have been distilled into a single LP, but I'm quite sure that Load Reload should have been one album. If you take the best stuff from both albums and put it together, you have a record so strong that even people who hated it would be unable to deny it. Another good reason to dislike these albums is that James's voice changed again, because by the time he got to the Black Album, he was a physically full-grown man, and his voice was in its angry, vengeful God era. Amazing. But he was shredding his throat singing like that, singing from the throat instead of singing from the belly, the way that you get taught in school to sing. So while he was on the Black Album tour, James sought treatment for his throat problems, and he went to see a Jewish cantor who taught vocal health lessons to the stars, and there James learned to sing all over again, from his belly instead of his throat, which is definitely a healthier way to sing 
it just doesn't sound as good coming out of James Hetfield. His voice sounds best when he is shredding his throat. When he sings from his belly, he gets this yarl sound that sounds kind of like a country western singer, and lots of people don't like that sound coming out of James Hetfield's mouth. I don't really like that sound. And it's telling that in most of Metallica's subsequent studio recordings, James has let himself shred his voice in the studio, because he knows that pain is temporary while the record is forever. So he sings unhealthily in the studio, and a little more healthily on tour. Seems like the right compromise. I have recently revisited the Load Reload era, and I have been surprised by how much I have enjoyed the best stuff on there. The best stuff has a terrific swagger that comes from the band playing live in the studio a lot more instead of, you know, tracking each instrument individually all the time and making each one perfect. Also, Kirk plays rhythm guitar on these albums, not just lead guitar. On most other Metallica recordings, James plays all the rhythm guitar because he wants that hyper-precise sound that only James Hetfield's right hand can achieve. Kirk usually just records the solos, and he plays rhythm guitar live. On Load and Reload, they let Kirk play his own rhythm guitar parts, and the human looseness of that is so refreshing, especially in contrast to all of the like computerized perfection that we suffer with now. The band sounds like a band on Load and Reload, both in the musical sense and in the sense in which band could mean like gang. Like they sound like a gang of guys strutting through a bar together, knowing that they are the hottest, toughest, richest guys in town and nobody else can touch them because that's who they legitimately were in the mid 90s. That strutting swing on a song like King Nothing just feels so good. I can almost forgive that song for all of the repetition without development. One unfortunate byproduct of success is overconfidence. And this is the point in Metallica's career where they decided that no one could tell them anything. We're the biggest heavy band in the world, and if we just repeat this riff eight times without developing it, people are going to buy that, so it must be good. Even if smart people like Bob Rock tell us that, hey, maybe we should like take out a few repetitions. We're Metallica, and the buck stops at James and Lars. So I am going to put load at number seven on my list, and reload I'll put just below at number eight is because I think it has like one fewer hit songs on it, but that's really arbitrary. We're going to go faster through the second half of Metallica's career, which is what comes next. I think this is the clear dividing line between the halves of the career. Their next record was Saint Anger, at the bottom of most people's lists, widely regarded as Metallica's worst full-scale studio album. And yeah, I think St. Anger probably is their worst album, but it's not my least favorite Metallica album. There are things I like about St. Anger. Metallica were lost and out of ideas following the creative vomit that was Load and Reload. And James's drinking was out of control, and his then-wife kicked him out of the house to dry out and rehab. Jason finally quit the band. I'm surprised it took him that long. Jason's departure was a major blow to the band's live shows. He brought more energy and dedication to the live show than 
whole rest of the band combined. The crowd loved his backup vocals, which were really good in his early days in the band when his voice was a little higher. Jason sang beautifully with James early on. And when he got older, he just started kind of barking into the mic, but it was still super cool and people loved it. The fans always loved Jason because Jason is a lovable person and also because he was the fan in the band. Jason was the fan's proxy. I once heard somebody describe Jason Newstead as the union rep on the board of Metallica Inc. And I wish I could remember who said that because it's just great writing. Because, you know, some companies have a representative from their employee union sit on the board of directors to represent the interests of the working Joe. And Jason was like that for Metallica. With Jason gone, no one in the room spoke for the fans. And that may be one reason St. Anger went off the rails, but it's definitely not the only reason. They were just lost as people and as a band. Heavy music ruled the world in the early 90s, but by the late 90s, it was passe. Like, new metal was the only heavy music in ascendancy, and it was mostly terrible. Otherwise, the radio was all about hip-hop and bubblegum pop. And rightfully so, in my opinion. Pop and hip-hop were legitimately much more vibrant at this point, and remain so to this day, in my opinion, even though I am a metal guy until the end. Metallica decided that they would update their sound by not playing guitar solos. That's literally the thought they had. You can see it in the theatrical documentary about this album called Some Kind of Monster, which was like a moderate hit in movie theaters because of how embarrassing it was, how much juicy drama it contained. They decided that guitar solos were passe, so they deprived Kirk of his only real gig in the band. They tried tuning their guitars way down to sound more like new metal bands, and I don't hate that. I feel like they found a lot of new and interesting ideas on the guitar when they tuned down to drop C or whatever they used. I also like Lars's snare drum on St. Anger, and I'm one of the few people in the world who will say that. He wanted a really dirty sound, like he was hitting a trash can, and that's what he got. James was going through a lot of awful stuff, and he therefore had a lot to write about lyrically. His problem is that he would only work for four hours a day on the record, because his wife and his recovery team insisted that he only work a half-time schedule to keep himself focused on regaining trust with his family and all of that important stuff. All of this disruption coincided with the rise of Pro Tools. By the early 2000s, everyone was recording everything to hard disk instead of tape, and that opened up a lot of possibilities in terms of cutting and pasting. Before, you used to have to literally cut and glue tape if you wanted to make an edit. Now, all of a sudden, it became so easy to cut and paste in the computer that they started to write songs by literally cut and pasting in the computer, which is kind of how James and Lars wrote songs all along, but at least they used to have to actually learn their cut and pasted songs all the way through and perform them all the way through in the studio, which would, would prompt them to write songs with the musical equivalent of but or therefore connections between the sections. 
With the computer on St. Anger, Metallica just shat out riffs and literally cut and pasted them in the computer into an order that sounded vaguely like a song. And that problem of repetition without development got even worse because they literally just pasted to duplicate things. The title track, St. Anger, is probably the best song on the album. I love lots of things about that song. It is such a howling, desperate, sincere expression of Hetfield's pain at this low point in his life. And yet that song is twice as long as it should be because they cut and pasted and repeated sections in the computer for no reason other than to make the song longer. The repetitions sound totally unmotivated. Nothing happens in the music that drives toward those repetitions. And that's the best album Metallica could make at that time under those conditions. It could be a lot worse. There's a lot of good stuff on there, but it's really hard to listen to. All the roughness of it sounds so inconsistent with the high budget aspects of the project like only a garage band can make a garage album that sounds sincere metallica will never be a garage band again calling their rehearsal space the garage doesn't make it so despite all its flaws i find saint anger more interesting emotionally more emotionally compelling than kill em all so i rank saint anger at number 10 just above the bottom Metallica went away for a long time after that, but they found a new bass player, Rob Trujillo, who I was really excited about because I knew Rob from his band Infectious Grooves. He was a funk player, at least as much as he was a metal player, and I was intrigued to see if Metallica would integrate Rob's funk ability into their songwriting. They have not. I think it's fair to say that Metallica has underutilized Rob Trujillo, but then again... His greatest virtue is probably the fact that he is humble and solid. He's not a great virtuosic player, but he's an extremely good player. He's a very competent, right? You can show him like a complicated metal song and he'll learn it on the first or second hearing and, and he'll nail it in the studio five minutes later with his fingers, not a pick. Rob Trujillo makes Metallica sound super tight with his fingers, and that's quite an accomplishment. Though I'll note, he's still awfully low in the mix most of the time. And he cannot deliver what Jason Newstead delivered on backup vocals. Jason was really a second frontman for the band. And I'm sure part of James was happy to be rid of that competition when he got Rob. Metallica eventually made the Death Magnetic album with Rob, the much-heralded return to their thrash roots, their return to long, complex, multi-section songs with crazy time signatures and crazy speeds. I really liked Death Magnetic when it came out, but my opinion of it has dimmed in subsequent years. The production is bad. Again, they were trying too hard to sound hardcore and rough, and they were overdriving all the levels, especially on the drums, and getting this sloppy, fuzzed-out sound that could maybe sound endearing on a young band, but on Metallica, it just sounded fake. Like, Because you can tell that this is still a giant budget production assembled on a computer by a producer, all quantized and auto-tuned and you know, recorded to a click track on the grid and as perfect as any other big-budget record 
record at the time. You can't clip the, the levels on the drums and try to convince me that this is just a bunch of teenagers recording on a four track in their basement. That's not Metallica anymore. They can't act like it. The songwriting on Death Magnetic is way stronger than it had been in years. But it was becoming clear at this point that Metallica has nothing left to write about. They've said all they have to say, even if they might get better at saying it. It was great to have Kirk back playing solos on Death Magnetic, though the solos were weak. Kirk is a shadow of his former self, even though he still has flashes of brilliance to this day. But mostly he just noodles on the blues scale with his wah pedal and... Nearly anybody can make cool sounds on the guitar that way. One thing that you see in the making of documentaries is that Lars is now chiefly the one producing Kirk through his solos. I don't think this is a good idea, perhaps because Lars isn't a guitar player. Bob Rock is a good guitar player, and he legendarily pulled amazing solos out of Kirk by pushing Kirk out of his comfort zone. Lars never pushes Kirk out of his comfort zone because Lars doesn't really know what that is on the guitar. But maybe I just think that because I'm a guitar player and a music nerd, maybe Lars is listening with the ears of a more typical fan, and maybe those are superior ears. Maybe those sloppy blues licks just work, and, and I'm being a snob about it. But I rank Death Magnetic at six, no higher. Middle of the pack for Metallica albums. A few years later, they made Hardwired to Self-Destruct, which I think was an enormous improvement in the production. Let Metallica sound expensive, I say. And Hardwired is a really polished album with a big, giant snare drum sound. I think that snare sound is a little too big, actually, and it... It strains credulity in concert. Lars has had that giant snare sound live ever since Hardwired, and it's clearly generated by a pre-recorded sample that he triggers by hitting the drum because he hits that drum like a feeble old man with no force at all, and yet it still sounds like a plate glass window is crashing every time he even grazes the snare. I imagine the sound is actually a combination of the sample and the live acoustic drum sound, but I have no evidence to back me up on any of that other than my own ears and intuition. I do think Hardwired was a step back in songwriting. They just didn't have much to say. This is so much unmotivated repetition without development. James's voice is really strong on these later albums, but he's gotten so conservative about what he will do with his voice. He's got a few blues scale notes that he's comfortable with. The Lemmy notes, I call them. The tonic Flat seven, flat three, and the four. Most of James's melodies are in the Lemmy box nowadays, and that's boring. I wish James would work with a producer who pushes him to write more memorable vocal lines. But two of my favorite Metallica songs of all time are on Hardwired, Atlas Rise and Spit Out the Bone. I'm awfully glad Metallica kept making albums because I'm glad to have those two songs, even if the rest is real forgettable. In many ways, Metallica have been left behind by the kids that they inspired. Metal music has moved so far beyond this in its sophistication and technique. Listen to Metallica side by side with Polyphia, or Polyphia, or however you're supposed to say that. 
listen to Metallica side by side with the, you know, the gent kids and Metallica will sound like children's music. It's so simple, but Metallica remains on top in part due to pure inertia and commerce, but also because Metallica is still better at writing actual songs than really any other metal band. I know this is some bitter old man shit, but I think that Glenn Fricker has it right about modern metal. Glenn, if you don't know, is an old metal producer in Canada who has a great YouTube channel called Spectre Sound Studios. And Glenn's message to young metal musicians today is stop writing music and start writing songs with memorable, singable melodies and words and compelling chord progressions that build tension and release over time. Don't just write riffs and solos. I think Rick Beato has made the same basic point many times on his channel, and maybe we're just three bitter old white men and everybody should ignore us, but it's definitely true that if you want to reach a lot of people, your best bet is to do that with a great song not a great new flashy guitar technique or whatever. And Metallica remains better at writing songs than most other metal bands, though I fear that they have gotten worse at it. And this leads me to the new Metallica album, 72 Seasons. I'm so disappointed by this record. I'm very sad to say. I am not a hater. I really wanted to like this record, but it really seems like a continuation of the decline that I observed in Hardwired. There's nothing left to say. Drums too loud in the mix because Lars is in charge, and James is singing great, but writing boring melodies that are almost entirely in the Lemmy box. You got Kirk phoning it in most of the time on his solos, Rob playing really solid, but never really stepping forward and claiming his space in the band. And I think you can only blame James and Lars so much for that at this point. It seems to me Rob is not stepping up, creatively speaking. As like a team player in the band, he's still killing it. He seems to be a really positive force within that organization. I got to interview Rob Trujillo once for, uh, for NPR, real sweet, thoughtful guy. I wish he would find a way to do more in Metallica, musically speaking. What's worse on 72 seasons is a certain smallness creeping into the songwriting. Like the songs just feel slight, like there's not much there. That's been an issue for Metallica before. Metallica has lots of songs where the chorus might have worked better as a pre-chorus, you know, building to the actual chorus that they should have written. It's a This is a terrible example on some level because it's a massive hit song that everybody loves. But when I first heard Enter Sandman, I remember thinking, where's the chorus? And if you watch the awesome YouTube channel uh, Drumeo, Drumeo on YouTube, there is a hilarious video they did where Larnell Lewis plays Enter Sandman for the first time. Larnell Lewis is the drummer for Snarky Puppy. He's like a, like a top shelf jazz and fusion player. Metallica drumming is way beneath Larnell, and he claims to have never heard Enter Sandman before. I believe that he'd never sat down and listened to Enter Sandman before, but surely he'd heard it before. Anyway, the guys at Drumeo played Larnell Enter Sandman and challenged him to learn it. And in the video, Larnell is listening to the song, and as it gets to the chorus, he says, pre-chorus, okay. 
And then he's like, oh, wait, that was the chorus. And I laughed and I felt vindicated because I've always thought that song was missing its chorus and would have been even bigger and more legendary if it was a, a little bigger of a song with more content, you know? It's hardly the worst example in the Metallica catalog. It's just a familiar one. They have lots of songs where the chorus is just like the whole band stops and rests for a couple of beats while James barks the title of the song, and that's the chorus. The first single off of 72 Seasons, Lux Eterna, I was hoping was going to turn out to be the weakest song on the album. Turns out it's maybe the strongest. And it's got a cool little riff that is pleasantly reminiscent of really old school new wave of British heavy metal. It's got a cool, catchy little verse. And I like how the lyrics are about, you know, burning bright until the very end, full speed or nothing, the light eternal. And the chorus is just Luxie Turner, Luxie Turner, right? Three notes squarely in the Lemmy box. That's fine. Those are three big notes, really high in James's register. So it's really impressive when he nails them. But if I were producing Metallica, I would say to James, I would say, okay, well, what comes next? What comes next in that chorus? Let's keep the ball rolling on that chorus. Let's not call it done yet. What can it build to? Could it go Lux Eterna, Lux Eterna, but a na 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 and write a good version of something like that and, and just make the song bigger. Give the song more actual content instead of repetition without development, which is the exact set of words used to characterize 72 seasons by Shred, the YouTuber Shred, who makes funny videos about guitar. Love that guy. He's obviously very schooled about music, even though he likes to portray himself as a dumb metalhead, but Shred literally said repetition without development in his review of 72 seasons. And I felt vindicated again because that's always been the problem with Metallica or a problem with Metallica in my view. Now Metallica has lots of other problems and I don't see any solutions. The only hope I have for one more great Metallica record is if they can reunite with Bob Rock. I would love to see Bob and Metallica saddle up for one last ride. I'd love to see them go off into the sunset together, given all that they've achieved back in the day. And, and what a decent guy Bob Rock seems to be. Bob Rock seems like the only human being left in this world who could speak creative truth to James and Lars and be heard. So if I were Bob, I would call him up right now and I would say, guys, let's do the Black Album again. And we're not going to make the same record, but we'll work on it as hard as we worked on the Black Album. Let's leave everything we've got out on the field. Let me push you guys out of your comfort zone to write bigger songs that are more worthy of your power as a band. It's gotten too easy for you guys. You're like Paul McCartney now. It's too easy for you to toss off songs that are good enough. You need to make it hard again. And James and Lars would probably say, nah, nah, we're rich and popular and we have a lot of fun making the records that we make without daddy wagging his finger at us for writing too many songs in E and 
you know, so be it. So shall end the story of Metallica, most likely, and that's just fine. They've done far more top-quality work than really any other heavy rock band, including their idols like Sabbath. They have earned the right to just make fun, thrashy little songs they like to play if that's what they want to do. I may be putting 72 Seasons at number 9, just above St. Anger, but for a different opinion of Lux Eterna, go back to that Drumeo channel on YouTube and watch them play Lux Eterna for Thomas Lang. Thomas Lang is this big, muscular Austrian drummer who has an accent like Arnold, and yet he's also a total nerd, like totally unthreatening, adorable music nerd who just happens to be a total powerhouse, in the words of the singer for Dream Theater, for which Lang auditioned after Mike Portnoy left. I think they didn't hire Lang in Dream Theater because he was just just too good. Thomas Lang is arguably the best drummer in the world right now, certainly in like the rock and metal world, though he's also a killer jazz and pop player. This man is all technique, all schooling. He's even better known, arguably, as a drum educator than as a drummer. He's, he's basically the polar opposite of Lars Ulrich. And yet, when Drumeo asked Thomas Lang to learn Lux Eterna on the spot and to play it back, Thomas Lang just had the best time playing this song. It is such a fun video to watch. He just loves the song and he loves playing it. He says, you know, this is, it's like old, it's like old Iron Maiden or something. And he says that like, it's a good thing, which I suppose it is. I love old Maiden too. Thomas has clearly been itching to play something so straightforward and aggressive, and he kills it in his own Thomas Lang way. Though I will point out, he does not replicate the little double kick drum like flourishes the that uh, Lars does leading into the ver well on the on the fourth bar a lot in the verses or leading into the verses cool little flourish that is Lars still got it those double kicks sound awesome when he puts his mind to it his mind and his his little tennis feet the time has come for me to walk right out of here on my tennis feet such as they are thank you for indulging me on this topic those of you who did. Maybe we'll do more episodes like this in the future if people liked this. Tell me what I should talk about at askadamquestions at gmail.com. Askadamquestions at gmail. Keep that metal up your ass. Make good choices. I'll talk to you next time.